and, and apocalypse, read and understand as you learn more about Jesus Christ. We're going to begin reading in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 6 today. The preacher writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for, him, uh, take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil, just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot." Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness." and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with anyone stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? 
For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help as we turn our attention to your word. We remind ourselves regularly in these moments that the enemy is seeking to distract us, to take away the good word that we are hearing read now. And Lord, we pray that you would bless as it is preached. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see the truth of the gospel as it has been decisively revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us to behold wonderful things from your law, and Lord, that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Fiddler on the Roof has one of the most popular songs from any Broadway musical, If I Were a Rich Man. In the song, Tevye dreams of what it would be like to be rich, and at one point, he sings that he wants three staircases, one going up, one even longer going down, and one going nowhere just for show. A poor person dreaming of becoming rich is common as a pastime, but the lyrics of the song provide a powerful commentary on wealth, especially when we consider that Fiddler on the Roof is set in the year 1905. When we consider what it meant for him to be rich then, many of us would find Tevye's view on being prosperous confounding. In the song, Tevye sings about wanting chickens and other small farm animals in his yard, a well-fed wife, and some free time, all of which I don't think sound very rich to many of us today. Even the average person among us this morning has an income considerably higher than Tevye's and may even be wealthier than the lifestyle that he daydreams about throughout the entire song. But I wonder, if money were no object, what would you do? Would you finally decide to travel or buy a house or pick up that hobby that you've been talking to everybody about? Perhaps you'd pay off your debt or go on a cruise or finally invest in the stock market. Would you party hardy, or would you save a sizable income? People in our Western culture often admire people that we perceive to be financially successful, but the preacher of Ecclesiastes is far more skeptical. And he helps us see in our passage today that just because someone has made money does not necessarily mean that they have it made. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 12, the preacher looks closely at those who pursue wealth at all costs and highlights why the love of wealth is not the answer to the quest for meaning. Notice first, the love of wealth is a motive to oppress other people. Look in chapter 5, verse 8 again. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. In chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, the preacher observed with astonishment and horror that there were people who were oppressed, and he mourned and lamented that there was no one to comfort them. Now in chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, as we walk out of the house of God from chapters 5, verses 1 through 7, the preacher says, do not be amazed when you see the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness by money grubbers. Why? Look with me in verse 8. The high official is watched by a higher, 
and there are yet higher ones over them. When middle managers and EVPs and CEOs and CFOs and heads of state get caught up in a system where their only concern is the bottom line of financial production and gain for themselves, there will be the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness. As one pastor observed, here the preacher sees something that we all see. We see it in communism where the state seizes control of the means of production but we also see it in capitalism, wherever profit is pursued without regard for the well-being of other people. The preacher points out to us what we all know to be true. The very people who have been put in charge to serve others and manage others and help others often only serve themselves and those near them to protect their own interests and their own profits and their own futures and their own gains and their own inheritances. And somehow, in spite of it all, it's always the poor who get the worst end of the bargain. But not being surprised is not the same thing as not caring. So the preacher tells us how blessed workers are when a king resists greed and control and remains, verse 9, committed to cultivated fields. Cultivated fields for the people of Israel meant provision for the poor and the widow and the sojourner, as well as protection for the laborer. We see this in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God." The preacher wants to help us with our love affair with wealth by first showing us that the desire for it is often the very cause and reason that we give to suppressing other people. The love of wealth is a motive to oppress others. Notice second, the love of wealth does not bring fulfillment. Look in verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. In light of the oppression of the poor by the wealthy, we might think as we continue to move through the passage that the acquisition of wealth would actually bring happiness to the people who get to obtain it. I mean, if they are going out of their way to oppress other people and subjugate other people so that they can harness resources for themselves, surely they enjoy what they are able to obtain for themselves. The preacher tells us that this is not so. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. The problem, of course, is not money. Money is neutral. Money is merely something that all of us use as a means of trade and transaction. The problem, according to the preacher, is the love of money. As the apostle said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Or as Jesus says in the parable, when the concerns of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, it proves unfruitful. People who love money never have enough money. People who live for money never are satisfied. People who desire money always want more. 
Sometimes when you're in the hospital, if your condition is severe enough and painful enough, the doctors will actually give you access to morphine. If you just press the button, you can give yourself a little bit more morphine. But there's a catch. You can only press the button so many times so frequently and actually give yourself more morphine so that you don't overdose. It's a safety protocol so that you don't harm yourself by giving yourself too much. But money doesn't have that, does it? If you make a million, why not try for two million? Why not five million, 50 million, 100 million? Why not have all the millions? Why share any of it? If you want more, you can always try and get more. If you earn more, then you can keep more. If you make more, then you can save more, even if it's unsafe for you to do so. Friends, it is the wealthy fool who fails to see the good in what he has. And so he constantly pines for more. So the preacher tells us in chapter 6, verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. What's he saying? You eat the most hearty meal that you've ever eaten. You're full and you think, like many of us have said sometimes, I could never eat again. And then what happens the next morning? You are starving. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. What is the profit that wisdom has over folly, which the poor man is described as grasping in contrast to the rich man? The preacher tells us that it lies and that we should rest content with what is actually right before us and resist the temptation to wander off in search of more all the time and forever because the appetite for what money can buy is never satisfied. And the insatiable appetite for money actually trains us to be dissatisfied with all of the other good things that we have in life. Whether it be academic success and we want more, or athletic achievement, and we want more, or musical accomplishment, and we'd like something greater, or sexual pleasure, and we'd rather have it from somewhere else, or many other good things in life. We're training ourselves to take and consume, to have and to get, and there is never enough to the bottomless pit. The insatiable appetite for money tempts us to have what the preacher calls in chapter 6, verse 9, a wandering appetite, which is why we can pray for God to give us something, and when he finally gives it, immediately look somewhere else for more. But rather than always craving for more, the preacher tells us that the way of Christ teaches us that we should be happy with less because we are satisfied with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, hear the warning from the passage today. Keep yourself from the love of money, or you may end up like John D. Rockefeller. When he was the richest person in the world, he was asked how much money was enough, and he famously replied, just a little bit more. This also, the preacher tells us in verse 10, is vanity because the love of money does not satisfy. The love of wealth is a motive to oppress others. The love of wealth does not bring fulfillment. Notice third, the love of wealth invites frustration. Look at verse 11. 
when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eye? The preacher notes that increased wealth costs as other people try to mooch from us to take it from us. It might be the government raising your taxes so they can have more, or our so-called friends who always need a handout, or your family members who just want more extravagant gifts because they know that you can afford it, or the freeloaders who come begging for what is yours and they did not earn, but people who otherwise would have had nothing to do with you all of a sudden find you and need you, at least your money. So the preacher warns us that the more money we have, the more other people will want it, and if they get it from us, then we never get to enjoy it. Chapter 6, verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. It lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. No one knew this better than Solomon, the king to whom God gave these three things, wealth, possession, and honor. 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 12, I, that is God, will also give you riches, possessions, and honor such as none of the kings had who were before you, and none after you shall have the like. Can you imagine having everything that you have ever wanted and desired and longed for, and when you finally get it, you have no power and no time to enjoy it? And as if that isn't awful enough, it is enjoyed by a complete stranger, somebody outside of your family who has time and ability to enjoy what you have labored for with all of your hard work, all while you lie awake sleepless at night. Chapter 5, verse 12, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The proverb teaches us what we already know to be true. As a general rule, people who work hard all day, especially when they work with their hands, need no help going to sleep at night. But the preacher tells us that the idle rich do not enjoy the same luxury. They are up all night, and in their case, there is an insomnia from their indigestion. They have so much, and they are so full, they're supposed to be so content that they're discontent and can't sleep at all. Their gluttonous appetite just invites discomfort and restlessness. Nothing satisfies them at all. The preacher's points here are very simple. And again, it's important for us to see what he's doing. The book of Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It's not a series of propositions saying, here's all the one right ways to do everything in life. If God wanted to give us that, he gave us a very bad book, the Bible. But because he's given us a good book, and this being one of those books within that book, he's trying to teach us wisdom so that we might learn generally how to make our way through the world. Having a lot of money can be very unhealthy, not just spiritually, but physically, people who work hard should count their blessings, even if they cannot always count their riches. Refreshing sleep is the blessing of manual labor, but the lifestyle of the rich and lazy tends not to be restful at all. 
Though wealth promises us control and security and safety and happiness and rest and health and pleasure and more, the preacher says that all it invites in our life is heartache and headache. To which I'm not unaware that many of you would say, well, let me try having my own headache and I'll see how it goes. The preacher is trying to tell us what we don't believe to be true. I want his story so that I can know if it would work out for me. And he is here warning us. It does not satisfy. It takes you where you would never want to go. In your right mind, you would never weaponize wealth against other people. But when you're out of your mind and in love with something that you were never meant to love, you'll use the good things of this life to hurt the very people that you're supposed to care for and help. The love of wealth is a motive to oppress others. The love of wealth does not bring fulfillment. The love of wealth invites frustration. Notice fourth, the love of wealth is fleeting. Look in chapter 5, verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. Wealth is here today, and it is gone tomorrow. Like James tells us, our life being a mist, so often is our wealth. Just ask the London-based hedge fund company that took heavy losses back in January when they invested so much money in GameStop, and due to their bad day, lost their company. But even if we don't, verse 14, lose it in a bad venture, we can't take it with us. Look in chapter 5, verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? The preacher tells us what we all already know to be true. You will never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Though the pharaohs tried, they amassed great wealth and they hoarded their treasure for themselves and even buried themselves with it so as to keep it in death, only to find that they made it easier for grave robbers by storing it all in one place. As the apostle said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Brothers and sisters, if you cannot take wealth with you, then what is the point? Why live poor only to die rich for someone else to have it? Why live rich and die poor before you actually enjoy what you were given in this life? The preacher summarizes where greed leads us in verse 17. Moreover, all his days, he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Infinitely wealthy, having everything that he could imagine. No desire is left unfulfilled. Riches for himself, riches for others. Riches for his nation, riches for his account. Aggravated, unhealthy, annoyed, the Scrooge ends up alone in his misery. This verse gives us a helpful question to ask 
about our own anger, some of which is caused by the excessive love for the things of this world. When you get angry, what is the reason? And perhaps upon reflection, you will find that it is unsatisfied worldly desires or possessions that are producing anger in your life. If only I had, then I would finally be happy. The love of wealth is a motive to oppress others. The love of wealth does not bring fulfillment. The love of wealth brings frustration. The love of wealth is fleeting. Notice fifth, the love of wealth is a non-life. Look in chapter 6, verse 3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. For those who have miscarried children, these verses wound and perhaps frighten us. And at first glance, we begin to think, why are they even in the Bible? It can seem to us that the preacher speaks with an insensitivity to all of our pains. And it can seem that the preacher is theologically wrong by speaking to us as if no heaven or light or comfort is for children. There's only darkness. But a closer reading reminds us that the preacher is using poetry to expose the deep fallacy in the godless, wealthy man's thinking. Those who love wealth do not derive from God the pleasure intended in God, and they believe that they are, though they believe they are blessed by God, and they have achieved everything that other people could want in this life. In contrast to this person who is wealthy and seems to have everything, the pe- preacher paints the worst possible life. According to the preacher's way of thinking, it is the one who barely got started. They never got to possess anything. They attained no earthly treasure, to which the rich person would probably say, what a sad life. But the preacher turns it on his head. The stillborn child, though he or she never had money, they never built a house, they never saw the latest movie, they didn't get to keep up with the fashion trends, they didn't know who was at the top of the hip-hop charts, they have something that the preacher does not have, rest. And that is the one thing the rich man cannot possess and cannot buy. Verse 3, his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Brothers and sisters, I wonder, does that describe you this morning? You are not satisfied with life's good things. You have opportunity. You have a job. You have some wealth, no matter how much. You have friends. You are with a group of people this morning. You have food. But you are not satisfied. There is this deep dissatisfaction with life. It's never enough. You always want more. She's got it better. He's got it easier. I'd rather have that. Why me? 
and you miss out on what is right before you, though you live a thousand years twice over and father a hundred children, he is not satisfied with life's good things. For all his wealth, he possesses no contentment. Whereas the stillborn child possesses the riches of rest and the provision of God that the wealthy knows nothing of. No wonder Jesus teaches us that it is hard for a rich man to discern and enjoy and embrace the kingdom of God. The preacher sums up this section by focusing our attention on the cyclical nature of history and the brevity of life. Look in chapter 6, verse 10. Whoever... Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Remember, that is the question the preacher keeps asking from chapter three, or chapter one, verse three. What is the profit? What is the gain? What is the advantage? How do I know that I am winning in this life? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? God, according to the preacher, has made our lives like shadows. Shadows come and shadows go, and this is just like humans who have no idea what will happen after them. To help us avoid coming down with what Jesse O'Neill calls affluenza, making a playoff being affluent, which is an unhealthy relationship with money or the pursuit of wealth, the preacher has given us a long list of reasons why the pursuit of money will always leave us spiritually bankrupt. Wealth can buy everything that money can buy. Unfortunately, it cannot buy a single thing that money cannot buy. Meaning, purpose, happiness, peace, rest, love, salvation. So is there a better way to live? Thankfully, the preacher says that there is. The love of wealth is a motive to oppress others. The love of wealth does not bring fulfillment. The love of wealth brings frustration The love of wealth is fleeting. The love of wealth is a non-life. Notice sixth, the gift of God. Look in chapter five, verse 18. Behold what I have seen to be good. Now, if you were paying attention, careful Bible readers in here noticed the refrain of this is a grievous evil, this is a grievous evil, this is evil, which makes these verses stand out for us. This is where the preacher drives his point home. Chapter five, verse eight through chapter five, verse 17, and chapter six, verse one through chapter six, verse 12 are really telling us the same thing, which is why we dealt with it all at one time. But sandwiched right in the middle of those are these verses where he inserts something good. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. 
for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. The preacher gives us a balanced, God-centered view of life. I wonder if you noticed it just as we read. God is mentioned four times in three verses and six times in five verses if you look at chapter six, verses one and two. Earlier, when he was talking about the vanity of money, he doesn't mention God at all, except in the chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. But in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, the preacher inserts God into the midst of this, and he says, these are the things that God has given. This is what God has done. God wants you to enjoy these things. This is the good life. He's trying to paint the picture. Enjoy what you have. Don't just long for what somebody else has. This is the gift of God, your toil, your opportunity. These are the things that you should delight in. Whatever enjoyment he finds, he finds in God and in God alone. Without God, life is meaningless and miserable and purposeless, especially if we live for money. But with God, there is enjoyment in toil and the power to enjoy wealth and possessions and rejoicing in our lot. The question then, friends, is have you turned away from the weariness of wealth and every other good thing to find your enjoyment in God? And once again, How would you know? The Apostle Paul answers this question in a similar way when he speaks about what we have earned in this life. He tells us what our wages are. The wages of sin is death. That is what we have earned, and as a result of that, we are debtors, no matter our socioeconomic status. We all stand in debt to God, and as a result of that, we all stand separated from God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And the only way to have that debt fully paid for, the only way to have that debt taken off of us is to turn away from worldly pursuits, to repent of our sins that have amassed all of this debt and trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of that debt, the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? And if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, Do you recognize what is given to you in Christ? We read from it earlier in Peter's letter to the early church. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. What do you treasure in this life? What are you thankful for in this life? What are you pining after for uh, for in this life? Are you grateful for what God has done for you in Christ and that he has relieved the burden from you? So whether that you're rich or poor, have less or have much, are able to give freely or have to calculate everything that you give away because it has to be incredibly strategic, that you find yourself in a posture of thankfulness, not for the material things in your life, but what God has done for your soul. 
Brothers and sisters, if your life is like mine, I would say that there are many days where that doesn't characterize my walk with Christ. That I bypass all of the riches that I walk past in my home. Whether it's the kids that the Lord's entrusted, or the wife that he's given, or the friends that he's given, the people that care, or this church. Pining, yearning, looking for something else to satisfy. The preacher tells us that it never will. And we will keep yearning and striving. If you're not a believer here, this is the basic message of Christianity. But I wonder this morning, for you, what is it that resonates with you about what the preacher says? Do you long for riches? And what kind of riches do you long for? And what does that say about the state of your soul? We're here to tell you that it will never satisfy, and the only way for your soul to be satisfied is to turn away from the vanities of this life and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. The scripture assures us that if you turn to him, he will never cast you out. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In the popular musical, Fiddler on the Roof, as the lead character, Tevye sings, if I were a rich man, and then he says this, if I were rich, I'd have the time that I lack to sit in the synagogue and pray and maybe have a seat by the eastern wall. And I'd discuss the holy books with the learned men several hours every day, and that would be the sweetest thing of all. For Tevya, even though there are all of these ridiculous things that he wants throughout the song, it is the principles found in Scripture that would be the sweetest thing of all. Brothers and sisters, we are here to tell you that you can benefit from that same type of sweetness regardless of your riches as you invest your time, your monies, your life in treasure that will never diminish in an age to come where the Lord is keeping for us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Finishing with just a few application questions for you. If we think of it and frame all of our conversation this morning with, how do I know if I love wealth or if I'm enslaved to wealth or if I'm entrapped by wealth? I'm just going to throw out some questions for you. First, do you tithe? And if you tithe, is it simply a transaction for you or is it an act of worship? If you are a member of this church, you have covenanted with this church that you would tithe faithfully. And if you are a member of this church, you will know that that is the first time that I've asked you that question in seven years from the pulpit. Because we want to emphasize that what you need more than giving money to this church is to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. But if you are a member of this church, you have yoked yourself with us in the ministry of this church, and one of the ways that you said that you would do that when you became a member is that you would tithe of what the Lord has entrusted to you to advance the gospel of the kingdom here in this church and throughout our community and surrounding communities and around the world. And if you give, is it merely a transaction, like a bill that you pay, or is it an act of worship where you give thanks? God, thank you that you have given this to me, whether much or little. And I give back what you have given to me. May it be used for your kingdom. Second, if you tithe and give generously, are you so protective of the rest of your possessions 
that neither you nor your loved ones nor your friends can actually enjoy them. And what I mean is the scenario, like the guy who buys the brand new couch but covers it with plastic. Sorry if that offended anybody in the room. But he can't really enjoy the couch because he's so afraid to lose the couch. Do you give freely of what you have, but then when you protect everything else and you never use it and you never enjoy it. And by so doing, show that you are enslaved to your possessions. They can't be used. They can't be ruined. People can't see them. They can't get in them. They can't touch them. Third, what occupies your waking thoughts and your waning thoughts? Is it your net worth or the next raise or how much you're going to make that week because of the amount of hours that you put in, or how much your boss is underpaying you because of the amount of hours that you put in. Fourth, are you envious and jealous of what other people have? Or are you genuinely happy for them? Are you envious and jealous of what other people have? And are you genuinely happy for them? Fifth, do you fear loss more than you fear God? You fear loss more than you fear God. Sixth, when you answer the question, I would know that I have enough, what is the answer? I would know that I have enough Fill in the blank. What is the answer? Brothers and sisters, I think as we consider these things, and perhaps many more, we will find out whether we are laying our treasure up in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves cannot break in and steal, or whether we are building up our treasure on earth, which will all perish in the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the scripture. And Lord, we pray that you would help us apply its truths to our lives. We thank you that as we move through the scripture, you confront us with a variety of different teachings and a variety of different scenarios and a variety of different topics. And that in your mercy, you press upon every area of our life. The scripture teaches us that there is no area of our life that is beyond the lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would save us from ourselves. This constant yearning for more that is never satisfied and teaches us to be dissatisfied with the good things that you have given us, not only earthly material things, but especially our inheritance in Christ. As if it was a small thing for you to send your son to save us from our sins. Father, I pray for the believers in this room that you would help all of us to be far more strategic with what you've entrusted to us and that you would protect us from the love of money. And we pray that especially being a church situated in the community that we are in, we are so thankful for the great resources that you have given to many. And we are so thankful that so many people give faithfully to our church. But Father, may we never be so foolish or blind to think that that merits favor with God or that those things manifest the blessing of God or that those things are are the result of our own faithfulness to Jesus Christ. 
And Father, we pray for the great many people in this community who, because of their great net worth, find themselves unable to think of themselves as sinners. Lord, that you would bring them to the end of all of their resources, whether that means taking them away or showing them that they will never satisfy so that they might hear the good news of the gospel when they learn of their own spiritual bankruptcy apart from Christ. And Father, we pray for those who are here today who are unbelievers and perhaps even in this moment will be tempted to think, I knew when I finally came to a church they were gonna talk about money. Lord, we pray now in this moment that they would see what the scripture teaches us, that this is not just about money. It's about seeking a good life apart from Christ. And we are so thankful that the preacher explored through empirical research all of these areas and bottomed them out to help us see that the great rich treasure that we possess is in Jesus Christ our Lord. In his great name we pray, amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?